Thank you. <laughs> Good morning. There's at least one smiley face. So, <laughs> um, yeah, just ah, the Levises are in the house. Oh my goodness, I love you guys so much. Ah. Sorry. Jerry and Linda are like my favorites, so that just made my day. Um, a couple of, just before I get started on the, the message content, um, just a couple of fun stories. I, I like to just continue to lift our eyes up and know that like, you know, we're not the only church in the world and God doesn't just exist here and that there's other things going on in the world around about us. But um, <laughs> Friday night, I'm going to bed going, Monica, why did I say yes to these things? Um, Renee, who's like the, the prayer pastor of Portland, essentially, um, messaged me on Friday. She's like, there's this 24 hours of worship happening in downtown Portland. People signed up in two-hour blocks to lead worship. They don't have someone from 6 to 8 a.m. Any chance you can meet me downtown at like 5.45 under Morrison Bridge to lead worship for two hours and pray and I'm like sure <laughs> oh it's so amazing this little building under a bridge under Morrison Bridge this little building I arrive at 6 a.m. there's this group of like 24-ish year old people that have been from noon till noon we're just in there worshiping for 24 hours um, and I arrive and they're delirious, they're sleep deprived, they're loaded up on coffee, they're like almost like they're drunk the way they're greeting us. Um, and, and then just being with Renee and some others and leading worship from six to eight as the sun's coming up and the city's waking up and we're praying. And, and why were they doing it? This little random group of like 20 somethings round about the city decided they wanna keep watch overnight. They wanted to see God move in the city so much that they would sacrifice all their sleep, they would get there and they would do 24 hours of just prayer and intercession. And, and you know, we're, we're leading worship, it's like 6, 6.30, 7 a.m. and there's people just kind of drifting off to sleep in the corner because they've been worshiping for 10 hours so far. Um, just amazing. So, so things are happening around the city that you never know about. This little group of people tucked in downtown Portland that are praying for Portland to be transformed. That's happening all over the place. And we don't see it, we don't know it, so it's always good to be reminded of it. Um, another thing going on, usually this time of year, usually I'm in India. Um, it's always really sore to be here when I'm supposed to be there. Um, but I was talking to some students that the first uh, class of students that I taught out there were supposed to graduate on March 15th, and I was supposed to be there for the graduation. So I'm gutted. Um, they're gutted because of COVID. They, it's been delayed till June. Um, but, but one of the things that happened, there's this little group of students that I adore. Anchor was my translator the first year I was there. Mahesh was my classroom assistant. Thomas is this phenomenal artist. So a gift that he gave me after my two weeks there, he'd drawn a portrait of me that is amazing. And then the last trip, he made this little book called Prayer Is, and he hand illustrated this book for the kids to teach them about prayer, just amazing. Um, and then Emmanuel, this really gifted evangelist. So what happened was uh, Mahesh's family have been ministering in their village. They're deeply impoverished. Um, most of those students come from poverty. The, one of them calls him on the phone and he's like, this is really bad, you've not seen poverty like this before. So they all decided, Mahesh and his family were, were trying to share the gospel, so these guys decided, let's go and see what God's doing in this area. So these three students went to join Mahesh and his family and then COVID lockdowns happened again and then stopped and then again. So for this last season, they've been like stuck 
with Mahesh and, and his family and, and this little church stuck there. So what do you do when you're just stuck because of COVID? Thomas sets up his easel and starts painting and villagers start coming to look at it. Emmanuel, Mahesh, and Anchor start sharing the gospel. And now there's a church. So like, we're like, oh, it's COVID. I'm just going to sit inside and watch TV. These guys planted a church. And, and I'm on the phone to Anchor, and he's telling me about these people giving their lives to Jesus. The gospel's going forth. Thomas had told me his heart after Bible college is to go to art school, get more training in art, and use his art for the gospel, and watching him, using his art as he's painting and drawing, and people are curious, and they're asking questions about the pictures he's drawn. A church has been birthed by a bunch of 18-year-old, well, 20-year-old students in India because they were stuck during COVID. And I'm just like... I'm talking to him and helping them out here and there. And he's like, ah, you're such an inspiration to me, is what he says. And I'm like, what? <laughs> You've planted a church, like, amongst the most impoverished people in India. It's, it's amazing. So, so um, they send, this is a very Indian thing, they send their greetings to our church. And I will extend our greetings back to their church. And, and I'm excited because at some point I'm going to drag Anchor over here and you're going to meet him. And you're going to be so blessed. So anyway, just, just wanted to give you a little bit of the stuff that's going on in the background that, that gets me excited and just to remind us that God is at work in our city and around the world. So we're in this series sent. We're trying to remember and recover our identity as sent people. Um, I think we easily forget it. So we're in Acts chapter 9. Uh, we've reached what is such a pivotal part of the story. In many senses, it's funny because Luke's gospel is important and climax is what it's all Jesus and his death and resurrection, but it kind of feels like Acts 9 is really what's been built up toward. Like Jesus has come, he's died, he's raised from the dead, he's poured out his spirit, the church is kind of fumbling along, and then Paul enters the story. Um, and so this moment is probably one of the most momentous moments in church history. So, so let's read this. Um, it's such an important story. This is Luke giving the account of it, but uh, this gets repeated three times. So in chapter 22 and in chapter 26, when Paul has to give defense uh, before leaders, he shares this story. So it gets repeated multiple times through this book because it's so pivotal. So let's read Acts chapter 9, and then we'll talk about it. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So remember, Stephen's been killed. The church is now scattered into Judea, Judea and Samaria. So meanwhile, while the church is scattering, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, the, the, the name that Luke begins to use for Christianity. If he found any there in Damascus who belonged to the way, whether men or women, that he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem to kill them. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. 
Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he'd preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found an, a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas said, Peter, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up and all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. 
Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and he prayed, turning toward the dead woman. He said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Little side note, okay, I have this app called Dwell, which reads you scripture. It's pretty awesome. It has like music in the background, and you can change the voices and the scripture uh, translation and the speed that they speak. And there's this setting um, where you can click it, and it will repeat the same thing over and over again with like a little gap in between with some music playing just so you can reflect. So every time I'm preparing for my sermon, I have it on loop. The, the verse, the, the, the chapter that, that I'm working on, and it just plays over and over again. It gives me like 30 seconds to a minute in between as I pray and think about it, and I just listen over and over and over again. I need to email them because when you get to Acts chapter 9, there's a glitch, <laughs> and it gets to the end of chapter 9, and rather than going back to the beginning, it just gets stuck, and it just, so all I've been listening to multiple times all week, Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Peter <laughs> stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. So I'm sure there's probably some profound revelation in that verse for me, but I'm yet to discover it. So, uh, <laughs> so, so here we go. <laughs> That's a red up. I was like, oh, geez, I don't want to hear that verse again. <laughs> so this, as I say, this is a pivotal moment in the story. Like the, the moment of Saul's transformation the moment of Saul's revelation as he understands who Jesus is sets the course for the church as we know it. Um, so, so we're going to jump and, and kind of focus on, on, on him. Um, but what I want to do with this chapter is, is there is a word in here that's a word that I kind of geek out on. I really like it, but it appears multiple times in this passage. And, and I think it's very insightful for how this passage is tied together. Um, and, and so we're, we're going to look at it. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a word that, that fascinates me. It's, it's in there four times. If you use a Bible like I just read, like the NIV, um, they kind of change it each time it comes up. If you read a Bible like ESV or the New King James Version or the King James, this word will have been repeated each time in your translation. But the word is arise, uh, and the Greek word is anhistemi. So, so it comes from the word histemi, which is just stand. Um, and so it's this word, anhistemi. Uh, and so this is, uh, I find this word fascinating. So when you're looking through the Bible, this word appears all the time. It can mean stand up, it can mean get up, it can mean all sorts of things. When Luke is writing, and especially as he's writing in Acts, he uses this word in a very particular way. So when he's using it as a verb, quite often in Acts, this word is referring to Jesus being raised. So the whole idea of Jesus arising or being raised or lifted up, but then throughout the rest of the book, occasionally you've got verbs like action words. So he stands up, he rises or whatever. But when it gets into the imperative, so command form, this word appears a lot through Acts as a command, like to arise or to get up. And whenever it happens, it's like a commissioning word that, that requires, it, it's about divine initiative that requires a response from us. So when, when you look at 
Acts chapter 9, it's like, well, you've got Saul, you've got this story about Ananias, you've got this story about Aeneas, you've got this story about Tabitha. Like, how do they all go together? Well, in every story, this word appears, and there's a command given to the person to arise and do something. So I want to uh, sit with this word and use it to frame how we look at this passage, um, and we look at the command given to them, uh, the response that they are invited to walk in, and then what that means for us. So the first time that we encounter it is right at the beginning in the story of Saul. Um, and so we're going to look at this. We're, we're titling this, this, this message, The Least Likely Candidate. And I'll give the game away a little bit. We're going to talk about Saul as the least likely candidate to be called and used. But in actual fact, in this passage, there are five least likely candidates. And every one of these stories is a least likely candidate to, to, to be interacting with Jesus and be used by him. So we've got to remember, before we look at the verse, we've got to remember who Saul is. So he's this guy, he's a Jew, he's a Pharisee. That means he is committed to understanding the Torah, the, the Jewish scriptures and their teaching. He's committed to learning the word of God as a Pharisee. Um, the training required means that he's probably got, if not all of it, the majority of what we call the Old Testament memorized. Uh, so it's a rigorous training process where they memorize and they recite and they discuss and they tear it apart. And, and, and uh, Saul, in other letters, later in Acts, as he's defending, and some of the letters he writes, he explains that he wasn't just any Pharisee. He was the most religious. He was the most zealous. He was the most educated. He was the most intellectual. So when it comes to the things of the law, this guy was flawless in living it and bold and knowledgeable in teaching it. And here you've got this guy who is dead set against Christianity. He's a religious man. He's looked at the revelation of God. He understands that God created. He understands the calling of Abraham. He understands that the law given through Moses and all of the system that's been set in place for intimacy with God. So you have to be a part of Israel. You have to be part of the sacrificial system. You have to be under the authority of the priests. You have to be atoning for your sins. He understands that this is how it's supposed to go. And every now and then, these other faiths rise up. These other nations round about with other disparate beliefs come on the scene. And the whole story of Israel is, is one of purifying and being called out. So you can't look just like everyone else. You've got to follow me. Here's the rules of what it looks like to be part of God's holy people because you have to look different from the nations round about. So all through the Old Testament are these stories of what Israel does when it starts to be polluted by the religions roundabout. Uh, and and so, so there's, there's lots of stories of taking out nations roundabout that are worshiping false gods. There are stories of people running up and like staking someone through the head with a tent pole. There, there are stories of someone running through a field because someone is in a sexual relationship that they shouldn't be a part of. So he goes running through the field with a spear and just stabs them both to the ground. And this zeal for the purity of God's house. This is the person that Saul is. He's grown up in this heritage. He's zealous for his faith. And then all of a sudden, this person arises on the scene called Jesus, who's claiming to be the Messiah and trying to lead people away from the version of God's truth that, that Saul has understood. And so what does he do? Like any good zealous person does, he goes in opposition and starts attacking and trying to cleanse the world of this heresy that is being spoken. 
And so this man, the, the story lets us know, like he's, he's going to Damascus on a mission. It's, he's got letters of recommendation to go to the, syn- to the synagogues there to drag out anyone that's buying into this heresy, bring him back and have him killed. Uh, we know because when Ananias is, is talking with God, he's like, this guy's come here to kill us all. We know that the people in Damascus already know that Saul is on their way to, his way to kill them. So, so this is his mission and he's on a, his way. So this guy opposed to the gospel who thinks he's doing the right thing, but his actions are actually missing the point of who God is. This guy's on his way and all of a sudden, out of nowhere is this suddenly moment where there's this blinding light that it says it's happening about noonday and it says that the light is brighter than the sun. So the sun at its peak in, on this road between Israel and Syria, that the sun is at its peak, this blinding light. And then this voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? This, this powerful moment um, as, as he comes face to face with the Lord. There's, there's a couple of just little insights I want to give or, or, or reflections is, is, is maybe part of it um, that, that I think are important as we think about what's actually happening in this moment. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you've thought about this. I'm sure you've heard people talk about this. Paul is persecuting the church. He's persecuting people. He's attacking people like Stephen. When confronted with the Lord, God says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so, so Jesus is not like, oh, you're persecuting these people out there. You are persecuting and attacking me. Now, the thing that I want to just plant in our mind, because it comes up later and it impacts the rest of the New Testament, where do you think Saul starts to understand this theology that the church is the body of Christ? How do you think he comes to this idea that when one part of the body is harmed, everyone suffers with it? And if you unite your body to to a prostitute, you're also uniting Jesus to a prostitute. This idea of the relationship between the church and Christ is firmly planted in him at this moment where he's looking at his actions, persecuting this group of people, and Jesus saying, you're not persecuting them, you're persecuting me. Your attack on their body is an attack on my body. And so it's like this little moment where, where you just say, why are you persecuting me? In this moment, God is birthing into Saul the foundation of all of the thought theology that he's going to expound in the rest of the New Testament that impacts how we function as a church. Um, and, and so the side note with that is, is, you know, another one of the problems that we have, especially in Western individualistic cultures, is we look at our sin as an issue between me and God and me and the person round about, but I'm really doing something bad to this person, or if I'm just at home sinning myself, it just affects me. Um, but, but sin, when we sin, it affects the people around about us. It affects our family, and the impact of our sin is carried to the third and fourth generation, because, not because it's cursed, but our bad habits and behaviors are passed on generation after generation after generation. Um, so, so it impacts the people immediately around us. Our sin in private, holding a grudge, being bitter, uh, Lust stuff, sexual immorality, all of those things that you think are just about you harm our church because they rob our church of honesty and integrity and the ability to walk with Jesus together and reflect him to the world. But ultimately, it's, it's an offense to the Lord and it's harming him and his witness. And those things that we think we're sinning in private are actually attacking uh, the, the very one uh, who has come to set us free. So in this passage... Uh, 
That's, that's my preface. <laughs> in this passage, we get to this verse in, in, in 9 verse 6. Um, Lord, who, who are you? <laughs> and God says to him, now get up. The word is literally arise and go into the city. You will be told what you must do. So this moment happens. Jesus appears. Saul has this question like, who are you? I'm the Lord. You're persecuting me. And then this command, go. Go into this city. Go find this person and he's going to impact you. This command, arise. Arise and do something. Remember, he's just been knocked on the ground. <laughs> so he's, he's lying on the ground. Oh, who, who are you? What's this revelation? God's command to him is arise. Be sent. Like, get up and go. This person that seemed the least likely candidate to be a vehicle of the gospel. And I just want you to pause and think. Like, I've heard different things that get said here. Who are the people in our church, in our city, in our country that you're like, that person is the devil's instrument and they're the least likely person to ever come to faith in Jesus. They're opposed to the gospel. This is the Saul character. And God has the ability to suddenly break into their life and use them like Saul to, to, to take the gospel forward. But this command, arise, get up, and go. So God can take the least likely person and give them this commission and set their life on a different trajectory. Uh, in the three accounts where Paul is giving uh, this, uh, the three accounts of Paul's transformation story, um, there are two questions that come up, that come out of, of Paul's mouth. And actually, if you're reading some of the older translations like King James or New King James, their verse six is a little bit different to normal Bibles because there's, there's a verse in there that they take from Acts 22 and they plop it in the middle of Acts chapter nine, verse six. And it's when they were translating the Bible from uh, Greek into Latin, they took some little bits and pieces and tried to clarify it. So some of your Bibles, when you get to chapter 6, have the second question in it. The majority of Bibles don't. That's just a little tidbit in case your Bible is different. Um, but there are these two questions uh, that happen in Paul's encounter with Jesus that are really the crux of our spiritual transformation. These verses or these questions are the center of how we grow and what it looks like to maintain a worshipful relationship with God. So uh, the, the first one, Jesus appears and, and Saul's response is, who are you, Lord? Um, and then when it's repeated in the other translations, he, he then goes on and says, so Lord, what do you want me to do? To which God replies, arise and go to Straight Street and, and uh, arise and go to Damascus, you're gonna meet this guy. Ananias, where, uh, so these two questions are central to our spiritual transformation. Who are you, Lord? And Lord, what do you want me to do? Now, and here's what I see. We start walking with Jesus. We have this moment, whether it's young or whether it's old, we have a moment where we begin to understand who Christ is. Yes, you're the Son of God. Yes, you died for my sins. Yes, you raised from the dead. Yes, I'm going to submit my life to him. And now we think we've got that question answered and we can just move on, right? Who are you, Lord? I don't need God to tell me who he is. I know who he is. The core of a growing intimate relationship with Jesus is that you ask this question every single day of your life. Who are you, Lord? There are more attributes of yours to learn. There are more promises that I can stand on. There's more revelation that you can give me. 
If you imagine God like a diamond, it's all of these little faces and you're seeing one little chunk of it and it's like, oh, you can turn it around and there's more on the other side. To continue to grow and mature and deepen your faith is to say, God, I know a lot about you, but there is so much more to learn. And the reality is, however much you know about how to answer this question, who are you, Lord? It is like this much of an infinite amount of information. So if you want to be someone that continues to grow and deepen your faith, then you have to keep asking this question. Who are you, Lord? Show me more of who you are, more of your compassion, more of your kindness, more of your grace, fresh revelation to lead us forward. The the second question he asks, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I think this is another question when you're comfortable in your faith, as you're maturing in your faith, that we stop asking. It's like God wants me to go to church. He wants me to give an offering. He wants me to serve in some capacity. He wants me to fellowship with other believers. But it's more than that. God, what do you want me to do this morning? When you wake up in the morning, God, what do you want me to do today? Lord, who are you today? And then what do you want me to do in response to that? And he's going to show you who he is, and he's going to say, arise and go. (laughs) Arise in prayer. Arise in love. Arise in compassion for the people around you. Arise in mission. Arise in worship. Uh, But we too easily think, you know, those questions are just the basics. I've got them down. But God, grow us, wants us to walk in these and allow these questions to shape everything that we do. So are we going to arise in this way? The second time we see the command to arise is in Ananias' story. And so uh, I'm not going to say much about this. Just the verse here, you know, the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Saul. That word go is the word anastemi, the word for arise. And, and all I'm going to say here is whether you listened to and were here on February 28th when Michelle was preaching or not, go home and look at the sermon that Michelle gave from February 28th. It was so powerful, we should be listening to it multiple times. It, it's, it's an important one to revisit. But she covered Ananias just amazingly. Um, And so I'm going to let her words stand to describe this, but I just wanted to draw attention. We've looked at Saul and this command to arise. Now Ananias, the ordinary fearful Christian, called to step out in boldness with this command, arise and go, and and there's, there's work for you to do. The third time we see that the command is with this person, Aeneas. Now, I don't know the humor level of people in this church. You have to be really careful when you try and pronounce this guy's name, especially when you have a Scottish accent. Um, So I will let you figure out ways that you can mispronounce his name. But I like to emphasize the E. (laughs) Aeneas. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's very helpful, sorry. Um, But look at this story. I'm saying these stories are not random stories that are just stuck together. This concept of the command and invitation to arise threads through this story. So you've got Peter who's heading out and, and doing his work in response to the Lord. And he comes across this guy who's been crippled. Um, and so his interaction with him as he looks at him, Aeneas, he says, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, roll up your mat, arise. Another invitation to step into something that God has for him. With, uh, with Saul, 
and, and with Ananias, it's, it's a command to go and to do something in relation to their faith. In this moment, the command is, I guess it's an invitation to Aeneas, but it's a command to sickness and infirmity to leave. Even this moment where he looks at him and just commands, arise, something different is going to happen. You know, Jesus, when he arose, made it possible for healing to be poured out on this world. It's a beautiful thing. There are lots of people in this world who are stuck in illness because we have not learned how to look at them with the authority of Jesus and say, arise, because God wants to bring healing. Uh, this is something I want us to step more into as we learn how to take hold of the promises that God's given us to walk in this stuff. Uh, and I just love, arise, he says, and what happens? Infirmity flees. Remember the difference between Luke and Acts? The book of Luke is, is Luke's gospel is Luke explaining everything Jesus did and said while he was living on the earth. He, he tells us in the introduction, the introduction to Acts, he's letting us know that the book of Acts is the continuation of everything Jesus said and did, but now being lived out through the church. So just as in the gospel of Luke, Jesus commands an infirmity flees, so in the, in, in the book of Acts, this command to arise causes infirmity to flee. Uh, it, it's amazing. This one little word is arise, the, 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 the enemy of God turned toward him. The word arise, a fearful Christian stepping in boldness. The word arise, this man who is ill made whole as he stands up and infirmity obeys. Um, the fourth time we see it is in the story of Tabitha or Dorcas, because you know we should all name our daughters Dorcas, because um, we know what she's going to get called for short. <laughs> uh, so I think that's why he stuck with Tabitha for the rest of the story. Um, we see this command to arise directed to Tabitha. And, and, and verse 40, I wrote eight up there, so we'll see 940. Turning toward the dead woman, Peter says, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes and she sat up. You get this moment where, where death is obeying. And again, it's the continuation of Jesus' work. What did he do? Jesus came and, and defeated sin and death. He defeated infirmity. He defeated the brokenness. And here in this moment, this command, uh, death flees. And this woman who's dead is raised up. Here, here's an interesting little observation I had this week as I was thinking about Aeneas and Tabitha. You know, when it comes to God's healing power, there is a conversation out there that it depends on the faith of the person being healed, right? You... God will heal you if you have enough faith. If you're not being healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. I was thinking about that with this passage, and I was like, how much faith do you think Tabitha is exhibiting at this point? <laughs> the dead woman mustering up all our death faith. You know, it's the faith of, of Christ on our behalf, the faith of Peter as he steps forward and commands a dead person to arise. And death flees and she steps up. So in this, in this passage, it's, it all centers around this command to arise. You see the connection to the word sent? We, we as a church are called to arise and to go. This command to arise is the command that God is still extending to us today. 
I said this story is, or this chapter is the story of the five least likely disciples. <laughs> you, or, uh, the least likely messengers. Who, who have you got? You've got Saul, the opposer and the persecutor, who becomes the persecuted and the proclaimer of the gospel. How likely was he? You've got Ananias, this fearful, ordinary guy, who becomes the instrument that God uses to bring salvation to Saul. And it's this moment. Saul doesn't, I don't know if Saul has the full conversion experience on the the road but this moment he's filled with the holy spirit and his life has changed you've got peter running around performing miracles that bumbling idiot that was impulsive and denied christ being the instrument that god is using to heal and to proclaim you've got aeneas this cripple who societally has nothing to offer you've got tabitha a dead seamstress (laughs) These are the most unlikely candidates to be used to do the work of God or to proclaim his glory, but God breaks in and uses them. And so (laughs) we are a room full of the most unlikely candidates to be used to transform Portland. Uh, Who are we? A bunch of, I mean, some of it, it, we all are sinners. We've got retirees. We've got people with debilitating ailments we've got social awkwardness we've got arrogance we've got and that's just me (laughs) all of this unlikeness we've got young we've got old we've got like speech issues a bunch of unlikely people but God is looking at us and saying arise arise church Um, as Lupe was sharing at the end of our prayer time arise in intercession God wants us to step into the gap and be this transformative presence, transformative presence in the world. We're called to arise. So in this chapter, just, just to summarize, the word arises spoken, a persecutor responds and becomes the promoter of the gospel. A fearful believer is given the boldness to, to fly in the face of death and become God's instrument to transform a life. The word arise is, is uttered and sickness leaves and becomes health. Death flees and life is brought. This word is a word that contains like the allusion to divine power, the power to convert someone, repentance, healing, resurrection. This is why I like this word, okay? <laughs> Arise. Like, what would it be like if as a church we grasped that word? If we understood every morning when you're lying in your bed, God is looking at you and saying, Arise. It's a new day. And we go, Who are you, Lord? I'm the God of compassion. What do you want me to do? I want you to arise and show compassion to the world today. Oh, but God, people out there are going to harm me. They're going to hurt me. Go. Like, I'm going with you. Oh, I can't do it. I'm bedridden. What can I do? I'm ill. I can't get the house. Arise in intercession. Pray for the world. Transform the world from your bedside. Young people, arise in 24 hours of worship down under a bridge in downtown Portland. People in India, arise and take the gospel to the lowest and the least. What if we grasped this and we took this as our identity and we said as a church, this is what we're going to step into. We're going to respond to this invitation and we're going to arise in, in response to him and in action to the world around about. Do you believe do you believe that he can use you to transform the world? 
Do you believe that he can take the most unlikely person in your life and use you to be the instrument to transform them to a, a, a fervent pursuit of Jesus? Do you believe God can use you to say arise to someone that's infirm and see them stand up? Um, so so we, we stand together and we say, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. I heard that somewhere. <laughs> God, help my unbelief. And God, make us a church that will arise in the calling that you've given us. That will arise in boldness and courage. And that will be your instruments to cause the world around us, Hillsborough, to arise in the name of Jesus. Portland, to arise in the name of Jesus. Oregon, to arise in the name of Jesus. The United States, to arise and be his instrument, leading the world forward in the pursuit of Christ. So, so that's the invitation. The question is, will you respond? Let me pray. God, I love, I mean, <laughs> just thinking about Isaiah 60 that we've been praying, like arise and shine. I think of all those commands in Scripture, arise, O God, and come to our aid. And then I think of these words, Lord, that we as a church would arise. Would you stir something new in us, fresh revelation? Lord, who are you? Reveal it to us. Lord, what do you want us to do? Reveal it to us. Give us the boldness, the courage, the excitement, the strength to arise and to make a difference in the world. So, Lord, we love you and we are ready. Um, God, increase our faith and send us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.